This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Protesters, driven by opposition to restrictions that the government has imposed upon them, in order to fight the spread of the virus and decrease infections and deaths caused by the, by the pandemic, are now storming the very halls of power where the hated state resides and does all of their dirty business. And it's not only happening here, but in other nations' capitals around the world. And it happened there first in understanding similar uprisings. We can get a better understanding of what is taking place here and why these mobilizations are so freaking popular from left to right. We'll try to get a better understanding of what is going on with these protesters when we speak in a few with political theorist William Callison and historian Quinn Slobodian, co-authors of the Boston Review article, Corona Politics from the Reichstag to the Capitol, defying conventional political labels and capitalizing on widespread distrust. A range of new movements shared the conviction that all power is conspiracy. William is a visiting assistant professor of government and law at Lafayette College. He is co-editor of Mutant Neoliberalism, Market Rule and Political Rupture. And you can find out more about William at williamcallison.com. Follow William on Twitter at Will Callison. Quinn is a historian of modern German and international history with a focus on North-South politics, social movements, and the intellectual history of neoliberalism. His most recent book is Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. Follow Quinn on Twitter at Zeithistoriker. Zeithistoriker. It's spelled just like it sounds, especially if you know German and can understand my horrible German accent. Zeit Historiker. You can find out more about Quinn at quinslobodian.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, well, if it's Tuesday, it must be Jess Lipka. Jess, how are you? Did you have the pleasure of enjoying an actual three-day weekend like I did? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not at all, right? No, no. So were you working all day yesterday? Yeah, this is a nice break from reading in my basement. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that you're enjoying a different small dark room for you to <laughs> hang out in. Uh, my girlfriend and I got a, a Happy New Year card, Jess. You're not going to believe it, from my girlfriend's sister, and it is spectacular. First uh, of all, who the hell sends a Happy New Year card, <laughs> yeah. right? But it was 2020, so I kind of get it. But, dude. The card reads, Happy New Year's card, the card reads, Wishing you an ordinary, placid New Year punctuated by humane civil occasions. The card is dated January 6th, the day of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. So we called and asked if she was being sarcastic, and she said that she had not seen the news that day until after she had put the card in the mail. So we now have a card at our house that we will keep forever that says, Wishing you an ordinary, placid New Year punctuated by humane civil occasions with the date of the U.S. Capitol siege on it. I, we were stunned at how insane that was. We immediately called her and said, This is dated January 6th. Had you seen the news yet? And she said, Nope, it just put it in the mail and then turned on the news, saw what was going on, and couldn't believe the ridiculous nature of the card that she had sent. Not only is it a New Year's Day card, but it was sadly prophetic. More importantly, Jess, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, hey, so what has the CAA been up to this whole time? (laughs) 
Hey, what has the CIA been up to this whole time? That's this week's question from hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all of the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for all of your support. We don't take any commercial money, we don't take any grant money, and we don't make enough money to actually afford to be a not-for-profit, so it's all about you. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com, or... Alex at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Jess will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, the question from hell is, what has the CIA been up to this whole time? What has the CIA been up to this whole time? Thanks to everyone who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support over the weekend. If you go to thisishell.com and click on support, you can see all the ways you can help out your friends at thisishell.com, including how to get any and all of our This Is Hell merchandise. Thanks for their support. This weekend goes out to Paul. Thanks, Paul. We appreciate it. Again, if you want to support This Is Hell and be thanked on the show like Paul was, go to thisishell.com and click on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell. And Jess has this week's hangover cure. I'm sure you do. I'm absolutely I positive you definitely do. do, but I need to open it. <laughs> That's um, a big issue. <laughs> yeah, this week's hangover cure is water. Alka-Seltzer, sleep, and a tuna sandwich. Earlier this month, The Guardian ran the article, Reader's Hangover Cure is 10 Ways to Beat the Post-Booze Blues, from Radiohead to Raw Mop Vinegar. In it, they quote Steve, a designer in Manchester, who suggests before hitting the sack, drink at least two pints of warm water. Each pint must have one teaspoon of salt and two dessert spoons of sugar mixed in. Your stomach will be fit to burst, particularly if you've scoffed a pizza or burger. But perseverance is key. Afterwards, and still before bed, drink one Alka-Seltzer, XS, per the instructions. The following morning, have a tuna mayo sandwich. For breakfast, wash down with another Alka-Seltzer, XS. If you have time, go back to sleep before you're haunted by memories of the night before. That makes this week's hangover cure warm water with salt and sugar, Alka-Seltzer, sleep, another Alka-Seltzer, and a tuna sandwich. Yeah, having all that Alka-Seltzer will really screw up your stomach, so probably... You will have, you will be haunted by memories of the night before because you'll be in serious pain due to Alka Seltzer. Does Steve work for Alka Seltzer? What's the deal on that hangover cure? I got to figure that out. Putting profits before people since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits, you can go to thisishell.com and click on support to find all the ways you can help out your friends here. Completely listener supported. This is hell. One way you can contribute is to become a subscriber to the This Is Hell Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday live at 10 a.m. Chicago time and podcast shortly after. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash this is hell. Sign up and you will get immediate access to over 150 Patreon podcasts. It's like an entire extra year of This Is Hell with monologues from me and classic interviews that you cannot find anywhere else but on Patreon. Last Friday, 
we were not sure which archived interview we would be playing, as just prior to going on air last week, we learned of the passing of the amazing indigenous rights activist Carrie Dan, who had appeared on our show way back in August of 2001. And we are not sure if we could find that conversation in our archives. That's how messed up our archives are. And that's one of the many reasons we ask you to subscribe on Patreon so we can afford to pay someone to fix our messed up archives. Because Richard has put a ton of time into piecing what we do have together. Alex was able to actually find our talk with Carrie, and we shared it last Friday. Carrie was on to talk about how Western Shoshone land was being jeopardized by the extractive fossil fuel industry. Meanwhile, during my monologue last Friday, we went back up north to small-town America via the Northern Michigan Weekly Community Newspaper, the Houghton Lake Resorter. Throughout 2020 on Patreon, we use the pages of the local rag that covers the area where my family has been going on vacation every year since before I was born. Specifically, we would cite letters to the editor from community members in the Your Opinion section of the paper. Over the last year, those letters revealed a lot about the minds of Trump supporters as the county voted 2-1 to one for Trump in both 2016 and 2020. And what we learned made us fully prepared for what happened on Wednesday, January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. With that in mind, we went back up north to find out what's been happening since Trump lost the election. And what we found... Well, it surprised the hell out of us. I don't know if it's because those who did not support Trump were afraid to write letters before the election, or if they felt intimidated by locals arming themselves while hunting rumored invasions by armies of Antifa members, or if they are suddenly emboldened by Biden's win. But out of nowhere, the radical left is fighting back against a solid year of Trump love and calls for God's law to rule Supreme. Keep in mind, the, the radical left in the county is actually liberal centrists who lean to the right, but that's about as radical as you will get in the area. I mean, sure, there's radical right-wingers readying themselves for the race war, sure, but the radical left does not exist in this part of the world, and if they do, they're definitely keeping it to themselves. But you can only hear our dialogue with the incredible activist Carrie Dan and the surprising reaction by locals in small-town America to President Trump's electoral defeat by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. And yes, we will be playing that interview, the other one that we were talking about on how six years into George W. Bush's presidency, non-governmental civil society organizations in the U.S. were still in the process of suing the president and his administration for misdeeds, this time related to surveillance and Guantanamo. So we're going to be sharing this Friday our interview with Barbara Olshansky, who's from the Center for Constitutional Rights and was working on both those lawsuits at the time. Uh, sharing that interview is going to be, it's all an attempt to remind all of us of how horrible the Bush administration was, how it lied us into a war, it implemented a policy of torture, it illegally spied on its own citizens while illegally holding others in an illegal war on terror. And that's the former president who the majority of Democrats now hold a positive view. Thanks to our newest subscribers on Patreon goes to Anna, Ari, Auf die Welle, which means on the wave in German. And Ryan, yes, you are here. And this is hell coming up. Germany's protests against pandemic restrictions reveals a lot about the protests here back in the States. We will also have Rotten History and tell you what's coming up 
this week on This Is Hell. Capitalism is the virus, and this is hell. Here in the U.S., the crowds protesting against restrictions imposed by the government due to the pandemic are often described with blanket terms that oversimplify exactly who makes up that movement. And the response to the protesters seems to always be one of censorship or a diagnosis of some sort of mass mental illness or rational shortcoming. Here to help us have a better understanding of what's happening in the States by looking at the similar protests movements in Germany, political theorist William Callison and historian Quinn Slobodian are co-authors of the Boston Review article, Politics from the Reichstag to the Capitol. First, welcome to This Is How, William. Thank you. William is a visiting assistant professor of government and law at Lafayette College, co-editor of Mutant Neoliberalism, Market Rule and Political Rupture, Europe at a Crossroads, and Rethinking Sovereignty and Capitalism. You can find out more about William at williamcallison.com and follow William on Twitter at Will Callison. And welcome to This Is Hell, Quinn. Thanks. Good to be here. Quinn is a historian of modern German and international history with a focus on North-South politics, social movements, and the intellectual history of neoliberalism. His most recent book is Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. You can follow Quinn on Twitter at Zeithistoriker, and you can find out more about Quinn by going to quinnslobodian.com. Let's start with you, William. Yesterday's New York Times front page had a profile of a Harvard graduate who was an environmentalist, Jill Stein voting animal rights activist in 2016, and now is a QAnon believer, which upends the time stereotypes that many have, many others have had and held about the protesters and those who protested at the Capitol on January 6th. To you, William, what explains the stereotype we have of the protesters? Why is there this idea that they are all poorly educated, working class, and have always been from the far right, or that they are all QAnon believers, for that matter? Yeah, I think that's a stereotype that emerged following the Trump election in 2016, coined in part by uh, Hillary Clinton, who called Trump supporters deplorables as a way of kind of dismissing them and, and trying to place their beliefs kind of beyond the pale. And of course, uh, in some ways, attaching that label almost to all of the working class. And in some ways that that discourse kind of framed the debate around uh, quote unquote populism in 2017. And what, what Quinn and I have explored and explained in part in at the beginning of the article was that uh, this this framing is perhaps unhelpful to understand what we're watching um, unfold during the pandemic with these uh, protests against lockdowns. So we have kind of anti-lockdown, anti-mask, anti-vax positions that are emerging. And uh, in many ways, what we're witnessing in Germany is uh, a, a movement that's forming that kind of uh, exceeds traditional labels of how we think about kind of political alliances or who would join a movement like that. And some of the people participating in those movements in, in Germany um, are of exactly the kind that you just mentioned and that uh, the New York Times was looking at, um, someone, from, um, someone who you would assume would vote, I guess, in Germany for the Greens, you could say. So, Quinn, uh, William was just mentioning the term the deplorables shortly after the 
January 6th protests at the U.S. Capitol and the occupation of the Capitol building. There are a lot of people who were on the left who were calling that the March of the Deplorables. I had hoped that the phrase the Deplorables was going to be thrown into the dustbin of history, but unfortunately, here it is uh, having a renaissance. Does that term, calling the people at these protests the deplorable, deplorables, is that seen by them as the insult that liberals are trying to make it out to be? Right. No, I think it is really counterproductive. I mean, at the end of the piece that we wrote, we mentioned the, the moment in 2016 when, when Hillary went public with this denunciation of the alt-right, which she implied effectively that anyone who was voting for Trump was allied with this extreme right, white nationalist, racist movement. And and by doing so, all she did was kind of give oxygen to the fascination with this thing called the alt-right itself, which was extremely inchoate and only in sort of a process of becoming. Um, Angela Merkel did something recently where she tried to place the entire uh, movement that was opposing any aspect of lockdown, as Will said, beyond the pale by calling them sort of enemies of enlightenment and enemies of rationality. And I think it's it's quite clear that these these efforts to sort of stigmatize en masse only just sort of boomerang back on the people who are trying to do so and produce a sense of martyrdom, produce a sense of persecution, and actually intensify the collective group ties of the people that they're trying to sort of break apart or, or attack. So I think those forms of insult are, are always counterproductive. Um, I think that they're it's, it's important to note, however, that the things that are fueling these movements are, in fact, um, you know, reflections of a kind of uh, something close to like a, a sense of emotional derangement. But the point there is that we are all experiencing, a, you know, emotions of derangement at this point in the pandemic, at this point in the lockdown. And I think that's the first thing I always like to start with when discussing this is to sort of acknowledge the emotions that are fueling a lot of these movements are ones that are actually shared. And I think for a kind of a centrist media voice to point to the margins and say only they are feeling emotionally deranged is extremely hypocritical. We're all feeling emotionally deranged. And the question is how we can, you know, nevertheless produce something productive out of that emotion rather than producing the kind of um, the kind of violent attacks that we witnessed at the Reichstag and the Capitol. William Quinn mentioned martyrdom. How important is martyrdom to a movement like the anti-pandemic restrictions movements? How, how important is it? How much do they depend upon that martyrdom for their movement success? It's absolutely central. It's part of what you could perhaps call the brand of the movement. It's It's the idea that um, from QAnon to what we explore in Germany, which is a, a group called Verdenken, which means uh, diagonal thinking or transverse thinking, the idea that they're beyond left and right, that they're uh, disruptive and against the system. So in some ways, maybe familiar to other political movements that we've seen before. But the idea is that, uh, well, in the United States context, sometimes it's called the big lie or um, this idea that there's a kind of cabal of elites. In the case of QAnon, these elites are uh, a kind of perverse uh, pedophile ring, um, uh, kind of pulling the strings of power. 
and what the kind of movement that some people call, you know, conspiracy theories um, in these circles uh, kind of uh, profit from is the idea that they are the ones in in the truth. So they could they call themselves a truth movement. And the idea is that uh, they are um, stigmatized both by elites and by the kind of believers in the pandemic, whether it's masks or vaccines or what have you, and that the exclusion of their voices from the conversation, or sometimes and in a very real way in Germany, their their inability to protest because the, the state has been um, quite uh, either repressive or just has prohibited, legally prohibited um, the the protesters from demonstrating, um, perhaps in, in many cases, understandably, when you have uh, a lot of people without masks packed in tight spaces. But in any case, what they're what they're kind of um, branding themselves on is uh, a group of kind of truth speakers against a lie and against a kind of cabal of elites that's repressing them. And William, you and uh, Quinn have this idea of a the self-identity of minor, minoritarian resistance, and I want to get to that in a moment. But Quinn, as the were the were the protesters on January sixth? Do you think that they were seeking martyrdom? And to what extent do you think that's what these protesters are going to be seeking tomorrow at the inauguration protests? Will these protests be a success for them if there is no martyrdom? Well, I think one of the mistakes um, of trying to make sense of something like the 1-6 storming anyway is to sort of attribute some sort of single intentionality to the whole group, right? I mean, it's quite clear based on watching it for five minutes and then based on following the things that have come out afterwards, that this was a real, you know, a medley, motley kind of hodgepodge of people that had attended, right? Um, one could see this in the in the sort of affect and comportment of people as they made it into the halls, right? Uh, Dan Danver on The Dig described nicely some of the people looking like they had wandered off from the tour while others, you know, seemed to have some kind of goal of you know, taking something with them. There's there's speculation about what was intended with the the zip ties and restraints that other people were bringing in. So I think it would be foolish to say that there's there's a sort of a single will or a single opinion behind something that was as um, open ended and inchoate as what we saw on January 6th was. As far as the people who would be on the more organized end, the kind of organized far right of the kind that people like Kathleen Ballou and Joe Lowndes have written so well about, then absolutely there's a whole rhetoric of martyrdom. Um, the Ruby Ridge um, events in the 90s um, are a classic example, the Waco storming, the, um, the death of Timothy McVeigh even. I mean, these figures are seen by the, by the, the white supremacist far right as people who died for the cause and whose, and whose lives have to be redeemed. But I don't think anyone would make the claim that anywhere close to a majority of the people involved with the storming of the Capitol were part of such um, discreetly organized movements. I think that it was more of a swarm effect, right? It was more of a, an online um, flash mob. Uh, I've heard it described as a clown coup. I think that the, it was a social media driven um, agglomeration of people that was then directed by the, the injunctions of the president himself. Um, 
but it wasn't something that I think one could say like they all think this dot dot dot. I think that there's what we're seeing right now more than anything is a kind of a tension between some people who are trying to sort of organize and direct the energies of this um, conflagration of emotions and then a kind of platform milieu and environment specifically Facebook that encourages and incites people to participate and encourages them towards ever more extreme views but doesn't exactly direct them towards one particular ideology it simply amplifies emotion so I think the people for example who have dubbed this um, upcoming event the million martyr march are you know clearly trying to channel a kind of uh, collective will and a collective energy but it's but it's not clear to me or anyone I think that this curious combination of people from the far ends of the political spectrum and everything from kind of wellness instructors to neo-nazis I mean these are not people who think with one mind and any attempt to herd them directly I think will probably fail unless it by fluke kind of manages to produce in a disruptive effect but you and William do find some commonalities within those in the mobilization. You write what those active in the pandemic protests did believe in was a high level of elite closure, suturing together media, government, big business and finance. They feel that the media and the state were working to create excessive fear in the population, conceal the truth and deceive the people. Nearly two thirds believe the Bill and, Gate, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation wanted a forced a vaccination for the whole world. From a class mm -hmm. perspective, the movement was far from lumpen. That is the dispossessed and uprooted individuals who are cut off from the economic and social class they normally identify. Participants mostly self-identified as middle class and were disproportionately self-employed, 25% compared to 9.6% in Germany overall. Protests worldwide were frequently have frequently been led by small business owners and the self-employed who conventionally lack the social ties of trade union membership and have less job security than civil servants or the em employees of large businesses permitted to work from home in white-collar quarantine. So the most likely to be affected by the pandemic, those without big business or big government or big union protection, are the ones who are protesting. Are pandemic protests class protests by those whose lives were the most affected, who have a shared precari precariousness in their work during times of crisis. Is, is that who the, uh, William, is that the people who are pro protesting, the ones who are the greatest victims of precarity caused by crisis? Well, I, I think that it, you could say in part, yes, but that might also not be exactly the right way to frame it. The, the leaders of the movement are certainly from the entrepreneurial class, from a lot of them are small business owners or a lot of them created startups um, themselves uh, that we're particularly speaking here and we explore in the article um, uh, the case of uh, these entrepreneurs that come out of Stuttgart and are kind of semi-wealthy but take a big hit during the pandemic and then try to use the, the anger and to kind of draw from conspiracy theories in order to you know, um, translate that anger directly into their their bank accounts or their uh, follower accounts or their YouTube sub uh, subscriber count, and and so there there is a way that a lot of the a a middle class base and an entrepreneurial class that is disproportionately affected by the pandemic and is not being sufficiently helped by the government is. Kind of quote unquote leading this protest, but at the same time, 
um, in Germany and I think also in the United States, uh, a large portion, maybe one third of some reporters uh, had it in Germany of the protests are um, are just far right protesters, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, white nationalists. Um, in in Germany, they they fly the flag, uh, the the Reichsbürger flag, the kind of monarchist flag, and in the United States, of course, the Confederate flag. And um, so I'd say it's a kind of mixed class base, uh, kind of it, that really cuts across. Um, class when you look at who's participating in the protests and also in these uh, in these social media or kind of you know alternative tech platforms like telegram um, there are a lot of different kinds of individuals and I'd say but it's probably yeah plausible that the majority of them have been dis disproportionately uh, affected by the pandemic in in a way that CEOs and the uh, the upper class, has not. Can I, do you mind if I jump in on that? Oh, no, go ahead. Cause I wanted, I wanted to follow up with something about it for you anyway, but go ahead. Um, I guess the, the obvious point to make first though, is that the people who have been hit hardest by the pandemic are the ones who are just working their asses off all day long. Right. And have no time to sit on Facebook and click QAnon memes or, you know, book travel somehow to Washington to storm the Capitol. Right. I mean, I think, you know, the first off one needs to point out that the working class itself is the one who has been hit hardest by the pandemic. I think that the, the operators and hustlers and participants in these kind of diagonalist movements are people who are in that status of, as um, Rodrigo Nunez has described, the kind of motor of the Bolsonaro movement is sort of embarrassed small businessmen, right? People who feel that they've been, as the Trump movement has shown us in its base, they're people who are like nationally middle class, but regionally wealthy, the sort of the boat owning class that we became familiar with during the campaign. So I think that it's, that it's important to see that it's not, it's not people who have been hit hardest, but it's people who have perhaps taken, you know, taken proportionally speaking a large hit, but still have enough means to, you know, cushion themselves enough to literally spend, you know, hours and hours a day looking away at things, as we know that the woman who was shot at the Capitol had sent, you know, dozens and dozens of tweets in the, in the course of that day and was an active person in these Facebook groups. So it's, it's, it's not really the wretched of the American earth, so to speak, that we're talking about here. It's people who are from that small businessman class who feel most aggrieved and feel like they should be protected and they haven't been. Quinn William was uh, mentioning CEOs and uh, in uh, Monday's paper, Monday's Times, I think it was the Times, and I apologize for not having the actual CEO's name. Uh, there was a CEO who was quoted saying that what is happening with the Trump administration, what is happening with the government right now proves that business, that corporations are needed now more than ever. Quinn, how would somebody from these mobilizations, how would they react to some uh, to a CEO of a major corporation saying that what has happened over the last few days proves that corporations need to have a bigger hand in government? Yeah, well, it's I mean, you mentioned earlier the kind of the shared belief and kind of the sutured together nature of elite power. And I think that's important to point out, right? Like, I think it's it's harder to say what these collective group groups are for. It's much easier to say what they're against. And there is clearly this sense that this, um, this conjoined cabal of media, big business, government, science, 
tech platforms are seen as a kind of um, common front against the um, the anger of the quote unquote truth speaking protester. Um, the thing that I think is really important to notice that's new about this year and last, especially since the um, the election of Biden, is there's a real modulation of rhetoric both in these kind of diagonalist movements and in the sort of more conventional right wing of the kind of Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram variety, which is more than ever now, I think we're hearing a kind of anti-corporate rhetoric. And you hear, if you look at something like, you know, Roger Ayer's, uh, uh, blog and and um, the sort of the the organs of the of the sort of conservative right as opposed to the extreme right, you see a talk of corporate communism and the idea that that there's going to be a great reset, you know, rolled out from above involving climate policy and attempts to address inequality and so on. So, what what we're seeing is very very new actually, which is there's a fear on the right both near and far right, that that corporations and governments have now coalesced around what they see as a kind of a woke agenda involving climate change policy, affirmative action, and so on. So statements like the one you just the one you just delivered, I think, you know, are immediate red flags, obviously, for these kind of protesters and and movements. But it also, I think, highlights something peculiar about the relationship to capitalism that these aggrieved small business owners have which is they're not anti-capitalist in, in most cases, right? They, um, as we put it in the piece, have a kind of slogan in many cases, which is, you know, trust not, trust no one but markets, especially corporations. So there's a, there is a kind of implicit and often explicit belief in kind of the need for distributed knowledge, decentralized information, you know, horizontality, the ability to trade and communicate freely, there's a, an anger against the concentration of economic power in things like corporations, but there's no questioning of the idea of sort of, you know, the market system itself, the price mechanism for allocating wealth and any attempt to mess with that, i.e. through socialist policy or welfareism, would be seen as repeating the kind of elite power grab because then someone in Washington is distributing your tax dollars and so on. So I think it's it's important to see this kind of inflection, which is still pro-markets, but ever more anti-corporate. And I think it's very unclear where that energy is going to go, especially since both GOP and Democrat parties are quite clearly pro-corporate and have no problem with sitting down and, you know, breaking bread with the CEOs of Silicon Valley and Wall Street, that's whose favor they're trying to curry above all. Um, so the question is, what did these, where did these protest movements go? when they see the truth, which is that there is a very, very close uh, marriage and relationship between big business and government in the United States. So, William, I, anytime I see what appear to be obvious contradictions, I figure that they're not contradictions, that there's something that I am missing, that there's just something I just don't understand. It would seem, and a lot of uh, commentators have said that this movement has a lot of contradictions in it. Uh, Quinn was just mentioning corporate communism and how you are supposed to be for markets and against corporations. And you write about how there's a kind of anti-authoritarian authoritarianism within the movement. Are these, William, are these contradictions or are these not contradictions? What do I miss in understanding these kind of dialectics without 
uh, with just looking at them as contradictions? Well, if you if you just if you take a traditional Marxist perspective and you and you think about the ways in which uh, alliances are being formed that uh, you just wouldn't expect or that shouldn't be happening, they they might be kind of easily described as as contradictions as as a certain as a certain kind of um, uh, deviation from the patterns of class formation that we've seen in the past or or political alliances, ways that that certain um, uh, political beliefs or class positions are brought into um, a, a certain kind of coalition. What we're seeing at the moment is uh, this kind of overlap between left and right positions that kind of what we call movement entrepreneurs are both producing in their discourse and profiting off themselves, trying to use an anti-authoritarian uh, discourse or politics to bring in parts of the left uh, to what we could call kind of some rather conspiratorial beliefs, and then in doing so, actually advocate rather authoritarian positions themselves. Um, so one way that you could see this happening is um, in Germany, we look at this one program called KenFM, but I'm sure there are uh, many analogs in, in the United States where you'll have uh, guests on the show from both the, the anti-war left, um, uh, kind of from the more, uh, the, the left of new social movements, of kind of uh, the student revolt, kind of uh, in the post-68 uh, era, and they're side by side with libertarians who, of course, have their own brand of anti-authoritarianism. And so if framed in a certain kind of way, namely, we're against the big lie, we're against the Great Reset, we're against the conspiracy of power that the, uh, the elites are using to control us and to manipulate our thinking, there is a way that, well, in a rather contradictory way, you can... Uh, attempt to bridge left and right positions into a kind of everything opposition, into an anti-authoritarian authoritarianism, what we also kind of play with it at, in a moment in the, in the piece, kind of invoking uh, the, the Frankfurt School thinker Herbert Marcuse, the, the great refusal, this idea that you will refuse power and you're kind of refusing as, and it's a largely kind of individualist call to refuse because everyone needs to think for themselves, but you're doing so uh, kind of collectively um, insofar as you join with these media hustlers and the kind of people who are making a lot of money off of QAnon. And I want to get to those media hustlers in just a second. But Quinn, uh, as uh, William was just uh, saying about diagonal movements, he, uh, you too write that diagonal movements trade in both familiar and novel fantasies about elite control. They attack allegedly totalitarian authorities, including the state, big tech, big pharma, big banks, climate science, mainstream media, and political correctness. They are in many ways, as William was just saying, descendants of the extra parliamentary new social movements of the 1970s, but with the idealism and desire for collective action or decommodification burned down to the wick of a defense of autonomous decision making. Does adding autonomous decision making to skepticism of big tech, big tech, pharma, big banks, 
climate science, mainstream media, and political correctness, replacing collective action. Does that change 1970s leftist idealism into this decade's right-wing fantasy? Is that is that all that's needed? Is all you just take out the collectivism and you put in individualism and it changes from a left-wing movement to a right-wing movement? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it is really helpful to put this all in the context of the kind of post-60s uh, new social movements that popped up in the 70s. And in, in Germany, anyway, a lot of people were ha- scratching their heads watching this stuff in the same way we are now in the 1970s, saying, what has happened? Everyone was against the war. Okay, they were against American intervention in, in Vietnam. That makes sense in the 60s and early 70s. But then the thing kind of you know, shattered into you know thousands of micro-Maoist groups, environmental groups, women's groups, um, street re- uh, street reclamation and and building reclamation squatting groups, and one thing that that um, people have seen in common in all of these movements in many cases is there were some that were still trying to put pressure on parliamentary politics, and eventually the Green Party, of course, came out of that. But there was also a big move for just withdrawal and seclusion, right? In in ways that I think in many cases are praiseworthy and produce some of the best things about. German culture today, which is, you know, neighborhoods that are more, um, you know, growing their own food, trading their own goods, um, make, you know, making their own homes into kind of shared spaces, you know, squatting buildings and reclaiming them, making them into places that weren't inside of the kind of wage and rent system insofar as possible. So there was that dynamic also of like, leave us alone. We're just doing our own thing. Um, which sort of climaxed in the refusal to participate in the census in the early 80s, which led to the actual, the failure to perform a basic census in Germany. So there was that level of like, keep state out of our lives, keep the elites as, as far as away as possible. I think that the, the crucial added dynamic now is, is the internet, right? I think that what we can um, see in this dynamic that seems paradoxical of anti-authoritarian authoritarianism is something that other people have seen in the examples of these digital parties that have sprung up in the last decade. So the sort of most notable example is the Five Star Movement, which um, emerged out of Italy and the, the Pirate Party sort of rose and fought, rose and fell. The Brexit Party was much more successful. And the, that paradox becomes less of a paradox when you see how these parties unfolded. So basically what happens is when you have a kind of a platform or like an online app that becomes the place where everyone supposedly can participate and all members, anyone who's part of the party, just join up, join up with a click and you have pure democracy, right? It's a, it's a pure model of openness. But what happens in these, in these putatively totally open horizontal spaces is eventually, well, a few people actually have the time and energy and wherewithal to engage constantly. And the sociologist Paolo Gerbaudo has studied this stuff and calls them the kind of super base. And then the people who speak on behalf of that huge mass of people, who he calls hyper leaders, end up having an extraordinary amount of power that eventually sort of becomes a de facto kind of um, authoritarianism of its own in the sense that they can kind of act freely. They're more or less untethered by the, by the, the, um, the def- opinions of their base. And we've seen this, of course, with the whole Silicon Valley ideology and the Californian version of techno-libertarianism in general, right? 
something claims to be entirely open and democratic and available to all, but over time there's an ever more concentrated um, power that emerges within that space, leading to, of course, the censorship actions of the last six months or so, where simple decisions by CEOs end up, you know, altering the public discourse in the space for discussion in, in extremely important ways. So I think that that is, that is the added ingredient from the 70s to the 2020s is, is the, the medium of the internet allows people to be kind of, um, you know, isolated, but together at the same time. Someone joked um, that, it's, that it could be called, you know, bowling alone, posting together. There's this kind of, um, there's this kind of simulacrum of collective action, which because of the nature of the incitement built in to, to social media platforms has a tendency towards escalation and radicalization um, in a way that refuses the horizon of decommodification, of course, which is what many of those movements in the 70s were built on. It's like, how can we unplug from the market system? By definition, these movements are plugged into a market system, precisely the social media market system. And so they live and thrive there and can never kind of question the conditions of their own reproduction and their own existence. That's, I think, where that's the real tension and the rub of the, the movement now as they all get deplatformed and kicked off. What will this look like if there's no Facebook groups left to organize QAnon stuff and if there's no parlor and no um, and no, maybe even no Telegram or Gab still remains to be seen. So, William, uh, you also point out that after receiving pushback, this is Kverdenken, the uh, organization, the movement within Germany, after receiving pushback for its tolerance of neo-Nazi attendees and lack of transparency, Kverdenken has threatened journalists with defamation lawsuits. It also formally denounced both left and right extremism while giving shout outs to the hardly centrist U.S.-derived QAnon movement. Yet the uh, person who started this movement, a gentleman by the name of Balweg, insists we have no political partners because we are not a political movement or a political party. We are a democratic movement out of the middle of society. William, why deny that you are a party or a movement? Why say that you are not a party or a movement? And do you think that Kverdenken is a party or a movement? That is a great question. Well, let's first maybe note that they're not the first to make this claim. There's There's been many attempts to say, well, I'm beyond um, left and right. Or in the, in, this, in the context of the United States, it's quite liberating, and I think understandably so, uh, to say I'm, I'm neither Democrat nor Republican, right? So there's this idea that uh, I, I, in my political positioning, I um, am open to new ideas, but also don't affiliate me with these uh, with the existing powers that be because they're either they've produced a lot of the maladies that that plague us at present, or because they're corrupt, and I I want to be pure of that. Right? Um, you could also see the kind of gestures beyond left and right uh, in movements like Podemos, uh, the the populist. Um, party uh, that emerged in the early 2010s in Spain. Um, what's different in this case, in this this gesture uh, beyond left and right, is um, the fact that well, this is a it's a very turbulent movement, and all of the energy is being directed against the existing party 
system. And at the same time they're doing that, they're the leaders are, I mean, they're really it's somewhat similar to the new QAnon uh members of the House of Representatives in the United States, where they're not really there to legislate. Um, they're there to almost kind of boost a media profile and to kind of take it down from within the 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 any kind of commitment to the common good or to any type of collective struggle that uh, that we would associate with traditional forms of uh, politics or uh, political conflict doesn't quite seem to be there. It's quite a, a nihilistic, um, uh, it's nihilistically contoured, you could say. Um, the, the movement itself, Querdink, in, in gesturing towards or, or in, in saying that it's neither left nor right, uh, that's also a way to just uh, attempt to sidestep the fact that the a vast majority or, or a, a large part of the movement is far right and that they need the far right to kind of help fuel um, part of their protests and the movement and that they're completely uh, fine with that insofar as uh, the disruption that they value so much and that they're kind of branding themselves on uh, continue. And you explain, uh, Quinn and William, you explain that self-portrayal as minoritarian resistance is a defining feature of diagonalism and one that makes diagonalists ready allies of voices in right-wing media who represent minority opinions on issues from vaccination to climate change to immigration and race science, which they seek to represent as the true voice of the people. Quinn, minority mi- minoritarian resistance is victimhood a part of that, that minoritarian resistance breeds victimhood, which can lead to an outcome and goal of, again, martyrdom? Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is also part of the reason why we don't really expect a kind of spillover into parliamentary politics in the conventional way, because much of the kind of energy and fuel behind these movements is a sense of self-selection as a kind of enlightened few, right? The people who are high IQ enough, um, enlightened enough to see through the lies and see through the um, all of the obfuscations that most other people, you know, the sheeple, have fallen for. So there's a, there's in a in a very strong way. This isn't a, a normal political formation that seeks to grow and speak on behalf of the people in in, in the aspiration that eventually everyone will join them, right? I mean. The, the category of populism, which we spent so much time talking about a few years ago, was is good, I think, insofar as it says that all politics are about attempts to speak on behalf of a people and a people that is often sort of in the process of coming into being. And that that is politics. That's the nature of politics. That's not a pathology of politics. It's simply a description of politics. The diagonalist movements we're seeing are not operating like that. Uh, there isn't an attempt to sort of um, amass the energies in, in, a, in a way that could feed into a transformation of, you know, lawmaking or parliamentary politics. Why? Because there is a belief in the kind of the hardwired um, dominance of a small number of actors who have managed to kind of produce a grid of um, of befuddlement and, and illusion over the masses and the 
the end of that grid, the end of the, the unplugging from that matrix, so to speak, is something that um, is not sort of uh, achievable through traditional means, right? So there's a kind of eschatological thing here too, where there's it's almost a kind of a pre-apocalyptic sense that should we break through that um, that grid of of control, then yes, we might step through the door into a kind of blissful afterworld, but more likely we would be entering, you know, an even darker period of sort of person-to-person -person combat and struggle, right? So it's a very pessimistic um, temporality that these 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 movements in many of their more um, developed kind of ideologies have set up, and absolutely, it's based on an idea of the of the privileged few battling against the benighted many. And in that sense is um, a form of resistance, which is a term they freely use for themselves, of course, um, that doesn't seek the kind of achieval, uh, achievement of collective good, but seeks to kind of, you know, battle it out and, um, and survive as a, kind of, as a kind of individual monad against all odds. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, there's the, there's the danger of further, as you, you've mentioned a couple times, of course, kind of deaths and martyrdoms propelling this movement. But I think, again, we don't want to give too much coherence to it insofar as those things we've been saying apply to a lot of the people who are clicking and, and making memes and so on. There are just as many people who are there just for pecuniary reasons to, to pick up the, the donations to their PayPal account. And those people who are have stumbled into it and may just as easily recoil and stumble out of it. So um, I, as someone who's, you know, watched the way that things like, for example, revolutionary Islamism in the Middle East have been built up as specters by the American media, I'm, I'm very, I'm very wary to kind of do the same thing to something domestic, right? To say that there's a kind of a kind of a feverish zealotry that is fed by martyrs that will, you know, only be happy in the kind of end struggle of, you know, blood-soaked combat or whatever, right? I think there's, we don't want to collectivize the problem that much because then we undercut ourselves with the chance of having any kind of constructive dialogue. I think that what we need to do is be frank about the suffering, both emotional and mental that, and economic, that this pandemic has done to us all. Uh, or most of us, anyway, um, and then figure out ways to kind of, you know, see people's pain and then continue to kind of dialogue in public, to do the hard work of science in public, which um, at least a portion of the diagonalist movement from, you know, Canada to Argentina to Germany is open to discussing scientific matters in fact-based terms. They are using the wrong facts, I would say, but we need to somehow, you know, make the the production of science and the production of a civic sense like a public undertaking, rather than, you know, drawing a cordon around these movements, uh, monstering and stigmatizing them, and then thinking that that solution will work forever. I promise I only have three more questions for each of you. William Quinn was saying something earlier that was uh, the first thought I had when I started reading your article about how about the similarities to at least especially the beginning of the five star movement. And you could see the similarities in diagonalism if you looked maybe towards the Brexit campaign. But I started even going back farther. William, to what extent 
is diagonalism and is diagonalism not Clintonian triangulation, just the co-optation of a political rival's policy position? Is diagonalism an, an extension of Clintonian triangulation or is that a, an incorrect way to look at it? That is a fascinating question. Um, I'd, I'd say there are aspects that uh, of diagonalism that certainly overlap, both historically with uh, the the Clintonite, Blairite, Schroederite uh, era of, uh, and I'll speak to that in a second. And there may be many which do not. Those which do, as we explain in the article about the origin of the term Querdenken itself, uh, just historically, uh, is is a term that came out of the uh, the kind of entrepreneurial disruptive uh, ethos of the of kind of the early tech revolution, um, which you know culminated in the dot com bubble. Uh, this idea that uh, in order to innovate and create new businesses and create new ideas, you need to run against the grain, right? And there are ways that, oh yeah, maybe both the left and the right have ideas that we can borrow from, but ultimately uh, it's a kind of fetishization of, of newness and novelty, and for the most part all, you know, in pursuit of profit. Um, and so the, the guy who, well, actually many different leaders who are making money off of Kredenken in, in Germany kind of came out of those circles in the 90s and 2000s that were shaped by the Clintonite era and the, the, the idea of a kind of third wayism, where it was essentially a rather depoliticized form of, of politics in a way of kind of glorifying and glamorizing uh, the market and the kind of figure of the entrepreneur and a way of kind of, yeah, you can borrow from the right insofar as it uh, helps you gain power. Um, which is, in many cases, what Bill Clinton did himself, as we know from from uh, cuts to to welfare programs to mass incarceration. So there's something about the ethos of diagonalism that I think you put your finger on there. There are some aspects, however, that I think are quite novel and maybe not easily associated with the third wayism of of the Clinton era, and that's the kind of the fact that there are positions that were or are still and certainly are still uh, traditional left positions that are being picked up by the right and then mobilized um, uh, in these protests. And as Quinn mentioned before, some of these are, I think there's somewhat convincing positions. They're anti-big tech, anti-big pharma. Sure, we could dismiss some of the things that they say, which, you know, will go from kind of mundane facts to just falsehoods about um, anti-Semitic falsehoods about George Soros. We could dismiss them as as silly, but there is a way that big tech might not be a cabal, but it is a cartel, right? There's a there's this kind of combination of left and right positions to attack those powers that you didn't really get in the Clintonite era. Quinn, what does the mainstream responding to these movements? 
with censorship and diagnosis, diagnosis like, well, they must be people who are stupid or have some sort of mental disease or something like that. What does the mainstream responding with censorship and diagnosis prove to pandemic protesters about the mainstream? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely just deepens that sense of victimhood. As we mentioned before, the sense that they are operating with a kind of access to the truth that is being that is being um, kept and concealed from the rest of the population. I think that, you know, what what Will is saying is 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 important because it's and what you your question, I think, is very provocative to think about this as kind of triangulation in the inverse from the from the opposition rather than the center. And I think that is kind of a way in which even despite themselves or despite their own self-conception, these movements, if you can even call it that, it's really kind of a more, it's a kind of a loosely affiliated swarm of mostly online kind of affiliations rather than a kind of, um, you know, an ideology, ideology being thought out by kind of party um, intellectuals then being disseminated down to cadres and further downloaded to, you know, party members. I mean, this is not what is going on in the movements, and that's partially what we wanted to get across in our in our um, article was the kind of chaotic nature of ideology building that's at work here. Um, it's more of a form of mobilization than an ideology per se. But the thing that I think is is interesting is that even if they, in some ways, refuse the normal language of politics and democracy, certainly, which is not a central category for them. They are nonetheless, you know, acting in political ways, right? This is a kind of a political beast. It's a political animal. And it's one that is, I think, very of the moment in the sense that is highly attuned to enormous inequalities economically and in terms of power that exist in our societies. It is of the moment in the sense that it is totally mediated through online platforms in a way that is the way, especially since lockdown, that most people have engaged with the collective television and internet. So it's a kind of, I hate to use the category because it's been used so much, but it is a kind of a morbid symptom of the predicament that we're in, not in the sense that it tells us something about people who are wrong thinking and need to be excised from the body politic, but in the sense that it tells us something deep about what is happening to our entire society and something that we need to be attentive to and responsive to if we don't want to sort of let them be the vanguard, right? I think that is the biggest danger for me is that is that the, the far right is kind of owning the public face of protest. We saw this early in the pandemic um, when the sort of boogaloo boys were, you know, protesting at the Michigan State Legislature and so on. And I was worried at the time, thinking that the far right was owning the face of, you know, public protest. But then, of course, the extraordinary um, George Floyd protest that swept the country in the months after that, you know, immediately made us forget that early moment. And there was a, a way in which collective energy and mass energy was being channeled through a different and in a different and much more productive way for a few months. And it's important to, I think, remember that, you know, efflorescence of popular energy and not once again sort of concede the streets, so to speak, 
to the far right. I mean, people protest in masks. We, we know it can happen. There didn't look like there were spikes in infection and contagion as a result of the Floyd protests, as far as any evidence that I've seen. So I think that it's, what's important is, is, is not to just sort of sit in this smug, observing rational center and sort of take pot shots at the psychos on the margins, but to sort of, you know, enter the confusing space of of, of street discussions and collective swarm action and see what can be done differently. So I think that for me is the kind of the important takeaway from all of this. I've got one last question for each of you, but before I ask you our final question, I just wanted to say that this is really a fascinating article and I don't want to reduce it down to just one point that you make, but I really did find the idea of self-identifying as a minoritarian member of the resistance is just that minoritarian resistance idea is so fascinating to me because I had never put a label on it, but I've been seeing this on social media and getting in my email inbox and even getting handwritten letters dating back to 2001 when it comes to 9-11 conspiracy theories. And I can see how 9-11 conspiracy theories can fall into that kind of a precursor of this kind of minoritarian resistance that we're seeing today. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. It's just something that I, I couldn't help but think about and keeping me up last night. So thanks a lot to both of you for keeping me up last night. We have been speaking with political theorist William Callison and historian Quinn Slobodian, co-authors of the Boston Review article, Corona Politics and the Reichstag to the Capitol. You can find out more about William at williamcallison.com and you can find out more about Quinn at quinnslobodian.com. Follow William on Twitter at Will Callison and and follow Quinn on Twitter at Zeithistoriker, which is spelled the exact way it sounds with my horrible German accent. Our final question for each of you is what we call the question from hell. I have one for each of you. The question from hell is the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And I promise we do this with each and every one of our guests. First for you, William. You write that beyond the obvious spectacle of Trump's Save America rally, Giuliani's ludicrous lawsuits alleging voter fraud, and Attorney Lynn Wood's delusional tweets, recent protests spanning the reopen, stop the steal, and other movements have tapped into a kind of hustling that the right has perfected but by no means monopolizes for itself. Alex Jones may traffic in conspiracies to sell his dietary supplements, but Gwyneth Paltrow can sell the very same supplement under another name. The same goes for more savvy entrepreneurs of political outrage. So, William, is what we are seeing simply the monetization of all politics? Is this the commodification of organizing, the marketization of beliefs, the complete privatization of public participation and discourse? Is this the inevitable endgame of neoliberalism to privatize everything, marketize all of our relations? That is uh, the question from hell. Um, I, I I think that in one 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 interpretation of what we're seeing uh, would be yes, um, that the the fact that this um, revolt, uh, often driven by conspiracy theories, though though not always and not only against government lockdowns but not just lockdowns against against ma uh, masks against vaccines and so on um that this is being driven by those who can profit off of that resistance and if you 
if you either get uh, if you jump down into the rabbit hole of YouTube or of these telegram channels, you can find how kind of entertaining and and wild and all consuming this content created for profit can be. Um, and I'd be happy if, if anyone wants to see uh, some of the the more compelling uh, videos um, and also the the more absurd but entertaining videos. I, I'd be happy to share those. the The fact that this can be done um, does speak to to some dimension, some, something about the the morbid era of neoliberalism that we're living through, and that perhaps neoliberalism helped make possible. At the same time that I'd answer yes in that way, I would also be hesitant to kind of just reduce it to neoliberalism or, or call this kind of uh, neoliberalism full stop or the kind of uh, totalization of neoliberalism. Why? Because I think this is just one form of politicization and of profiting off of politics that can happen and many others um, are are possible and for those who are organizing people nowadays and for those who are organizing themselves in in different kinds of communities um, the internet and and many of these platforms or uh, alt alt uh, technologies are necessary and important um, making sure that we don't leave uh, YouTube, or podcasts or radio show shows like yours to either the far right or the kind of wildest forms of diagonalism are it's a very important um, uh, task at hand and it's and all of these platforms and technologies are not are not reducible to what uh, we're witnessing with this uh, min minoritarian resistance so uh, I would say it's a kind of morbid uh, symptom of neoliberalism, but I wouldn't equate it with uh, full neoliberalization, as it were. And Quinn, our question from hell for you is, you and William Wright pundits trying to make spider charts of rabbit holes may find themselves nostalgic for the days when their populist quarry had an easily identifiable name a leader, and a face. I think that people are going to be very upset to find out, Quinn, that they are going to miss anything about Donald Trump. What will they miss about not having Trump? How will all of this become far more confusing and far less understandable? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that this for me is one of the reasons why I'm often uncomfortable with the attempt to kind of talk about every far right or diagonalist opposition to, you know, centrist or left wing logics as either, you know, incipient fascism, incipient authoritarianism, or a kind of a desire to, you know, put their leader on the throne and, and reign over all of us. I think that the more challenging um, mobilizations that we'll see in the coming years are not statist varieties of extreme politics, but anti-statist ones, partially because I think that that's where there is more space for overlap between energies that wouldn't seem to be complementary, but might be. And I'll use the example of the uh, militia groups in the Midwest and the, and the Northwest, who in some cases have now started to express solidarity with 
Black Lives Matters, pro Black Lives Matter protests, and and um, you know the desire to defund the police and so on. There was an image just uh, either yesterday or from two days ago of Boogaloo boys in front of the state capitol in Lansing, you know, in tie dye and and BLM T-shirts. Why? Because they hate the state. Because they actually want the government out of their lives, and they do want the withdrawal of sort of federal engagement because they don't want welfare state. They don't want, um, in in fact, many of the things that their livelihood re relies on, things like the Bureau of Land Management's um, subsidies subsidies for um, the kind of jobs that many people have in the in the West. But this, I think, represents a kind of a, a turning point or a fulcrum where from in the kind of 2018, 2019 moment, we were talking a lot about kind of the competition between different kinds of statism, right? Will it be the kind of authoritarian right-wing model of someone like Trump, or will it be a kind of social democratic statism, democratic socialist statism of the kind of like Bernie or Jeremy Corbyn? Well, the energy has gone out of those kind of left-wing statist projects. And it, insofar as it still exists, it's been co-opted by centrism. So now it is true that at the World Economic Forum and so on, there is much talk of sort of climate change and green policy, but it's much easier to be skeptical and cynical when those are the people who are saying these things. So I think the co-optation of those status heavy duty collective projects has made it harder to identify with them for people who want to see themselves as critical thinkers. And the attraction rather is gonna to be towards these anti-status and decentralizing forces which by their own nature are kind of at least attempting to be leaderless and kind of uh, fluid and often you know willing to be perhaps more violent because they're not worried about earning legitimacy in the popular eye or the popular imagination so i think the reason why we might in a perverse way be nostalgic for the trump era in the coming years is the loss of a kind of a figurehead that people can, you know, focus and concentrate their, their, their anger and their hatred on as the kind of rhizomatic multiplication of anti-status movements, you know, you know, strikes here and there across the whole territory of the United States as one possible future. Political theorist William Callison and historian Quinn Slobodian are co-authors of the Boston Review article, Corona Politics, from the Reichstag, Reichstag to the Capitol. You can find a direct link to it at our Facebook page, on Twitter, at our website. You can find out more, again, about William at williamcallison.com and find out more about Quinn at quinnslobodian.com. Thank you both so much for being on our show today. I apologize for going over, but this conversation has been really fascinating, and I really appreciate your very unique perspective perspective on what is happening in global protests. So thank you so much for being on our show this week. Absolutely. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Jess, can you please remind us what the hell is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering so far? This week's question from hell is, what has the CIA been up to this whole time? Fabio L. says, failing at line art class. Jesus Christ, this is terrible. <laughs> Adam A., probably playing both sides against each other in a sweeping game of intrigue and subterfuge that will produce no ideological winners, but make certain mean men even more wealthy. Ironically, the deep state paranoids are quite correct in this view, even though they seem to think it begins and ends with public figures being controlled by crab people. 
I'll be serving pigs in a blanket for the impending collapse if anyone's hungry. <laughs> Crab people sounds delicious. <laughs> Andrea T. Following up on Karen's tip that the black lady at Starbucks is in league with Antifa. <laughs> <laughs> Zach N. Defying the laws of physics by making wet work as dry as possible. Gross. Uh, Nohawk W. Not to mention the usual supply of white lines or black tar heroin for a war on drugs. Likely whiteouts for all those UFO reports. Do <laughs> you have any more? Uh, yeah. You, um, yeah. Uh, what has the CAA been up to this whole time? Um, Garrett S. says spreading QAnon worldwide. <laughs> <laughs> John K, uh, beer pong and drone strikes, dreading the return to work for the striving class on January 20th. God, that is a disturbing image of guys being drone pilots somewhere in Colorado and then stopping every so often to playing beer pong. That is a really disturbing <laughs> yeah. image that I wish they hadn't put in my head. Probably accurate. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, Matt H, sitting tight and eyeing each other with suspicion. <laughs> Johannes B, recruiting, recruiting QAnon scientists for the secret COINTEL amateur program. I have a feeling QAnon's going to come up a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Benjamin C, still deciphering the lyrics to Louie Louie. <laughs> really? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I think they were doing that at one point, too. <laughs> and that's all. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. That is currently available at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer to this week's question from hell by the end of Thursday's show. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history, January 18th, 1863, 158 years ago, Monday. Yesterday, but it's still this week's rotten history. Amid the chaos of the American Civil War, a Confederate regiment of some 100 men, led by Lieutenant Colonel James Keith and Colonel Lawrence Allen, entered the remote Shelton Laurel Valley in Madison County, North Carolina, where local Union sympathizers were sheltering after having looted a Confederate stockpile in Marshall, the nearby county seat. Looting? This will not stand. The Confederates, Keith and Allen, had been ordered by North Carolina Governor Zebulon Vance not to harm any prisoners. When a go governor with the first name of Zebulon gives you an order, damn right you follow that order. Who knows what planet Governor Zebulon is from or what they do to those who do not follow Zebulon, Zebulon's orders on that planet. All hail Zebulon. But Colonel Allen was distraught after having lost two of his own children to scarlet fever, and he was in a bad mood. He and Keith ignored the governor's orders, what? And sent their men through the valley, rounding up men and women of all ages, as well as children. They whipped and tortured the prisoners, burned down their homes and barns, and killed their livestock. Then they marched more than a dozen captives into the woods and shot them dead. When Governor Zebulon Vance learned of the massacre, he expressed outrage and ordered an investigation, and you do not want to anger Zebulon. Colonel Allen was suspended from the Confederate Army for six months without pay and spent the time making money in other ways. Lieutenant Colonel Keith evaded pursuit for two years, but was finally caught and indicted on 13 counts of murder. He spent two years in jail awaiting trial and was then released as part of the post-war amnesty. Meanwhile, five survivors of the massacre appealed to the U.S. Congress for compensation, but their petition was ignored. 
for war crimes. One gets six months without pay, no jail time. The other gets two years for 13 counts of murder. And the survivors get nothing. That's what amounts to justice during wartime. Finally, in Rotten History on January 21st, 1968, 53 years ago this Thursday, near the U.S. Air Force Base at Toul in northwest Greenland, an American B-52 bomber carrying four hydrogen bombs experienced a cabin fire in flight, which is never good. But to repeat, they're also carrying four hydrogen bombs. The whole crew was forced to bail out, and one crew member was killed in the process. The burning airplane crashed into the ice in nearby North Star Bay, not far from an indigenous Inuit settlement. The fiery crash ignited conventional detonators on the H-bombs, which in turn ruptured the bomb canisters and spread plutonium and other radioactive debris for miles. And if you're indigenous, at this point, you had to be asking yourself, exactly how far do we have to move away from white people to be safe? The subsequent cleanup operation by U.S. and Danish personnel failed to locate an important missing piece of one bomb, and high levels of radioactive plutonium remained contaminating the ancient Inuit hunting grounds. To this day, bizarrely deformed seals and musk oxen and what look like crossbreeds of seals and musk oxen are common in the area, and the dangerous pollution remains a touchy issue in diplomatic relations between the U.S., Greenland, and Denmark. And you got to wonder if those touchy relations over that cleanup came up when uh, officials in the Trump administration were reportedly looking into the possibility of actually purchasing Greenland. Also, in all the media coverage of the ridiculous story about buying Greenland, you would think the story of a U.S. bomber crashing in two H-bombs contaminating traditional Inuit hunting grounds would come up at some point during those three or four days of constant coverage of Trump trying to buy Greenland. On the other hand, the United States not being so exceptional by crashing a weapons of mass destruction laden bomber and spilling radioactive debris for miles. That's not the kind of American exceptionalism establishment media is that into reporting. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Jess, please tell us who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's show, also beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Tomorrow, we're joined by law scholar Rose Parfit on her critical legal legal thinking article, Mob Constitutionalism, The Riot and the Rights. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Jess, I apologize for going 22 minutes over. Thanks to William and Quinn, our guests today, William Callison and Quinn Slobodian. Thanks to Jess Lipka for producing, Alex Jerry for booking today's guests, and thank to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.